you would, please be seated. Take a copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 will begin in verse 8 and go through verse 24. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 3. You can also find it on the inside cover of, uh, of the bulletin there. Genesis 3, verses 8 through 24. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious in all that you do. Father, we pray that you would show us your goodness, show us your glory, even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of the fall of mankind and the curse. Would you show us the goodness that's there? Would you show us the gospel hope that we see in this passage? Show us our sin, but show us our Savior. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Paradise is lost. How will it be regained? It's not a crusade or a treasure hunt. It's not a matter of our renewed obedience. No, instead, we see this, that the God who created paradise, he will sustain us until he restores it. The God who created paradise will sustain us until he restores it. 
So there's hope here, but there's also realism because sustaining doesn't mean that all the problems get zapped away, erased instantly. Neither will those problems, of course, swallow us up, bowl us over. It's true if we're, if we're in Christ. God says through Isaiah in his word, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. In the waves, they will not consume you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel. In case you didn't notice, I changed it to the wording of the song we sing that's based on that passage. But when we last saw Adam and Eve, they were, they were naked and afraid, except, of course, for some fig leaves. And the Holy One was coming in for a visit. Now, five points this morning. The first one is a review. First point, the presence that exposes. The presence that exposes in verses 8 through 13. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They've sewn loincloths out of fig leaves because they're alienated from each other and from God. And that covering, of course, is not enough to shield them from the penetrating presence of a holy God. They hide from his presence, it says. They're afraid, just like Isaiah was. Even though he was a prophet, he was more respectable than the average person in Israel. Didn't matter. He still said, woe is me, when he saw the presence of the Lord. He said, I'm a dead man. Just like Peter was, afraid. When Jesus caused that miraculous catch of fish, what did he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The holiness of God exposes our unholiness. It's like the way a white car exposes all of the grit and grime that's on the road in the winter. His presence exposes Adam's sin. God says to him, where are you? In verse 9, even though he already knows. And Adam heard, but he didn't obey God's voice. But Fear drives him away instead of drawing him closer because he sinned, because he knew he was naked. So God responds, who told you that you were naked? And then the next question here is interesting. The Hebrew word order goes like this. The tree, which I commanded you not to eat from it. Did you eat? Did you eat? It's one Hebrew word. The last word contains the thunderous accusation. You only had one command, Adam. Don't eat from that tree. Did you eat from it? God is inviting him to confess. But instead, the shame, the fear drives Adam away. He fails the test. Verse 12. Yes, as we've said, Adam blame shifts. Do you notice what, what word does Adam save for last as he tries to slither away from the blame? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Last word is when he finally answers the question. Same thing with Eve. She first blames the serpent in verse 13, and her final word is also, and I ate. Also one word. Presence of God exposes their sin and their shame. They already knew it in part, but now it's been laid bare, and pun intended, despite the fig leaves. Old song puts it this way, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? We're all born with a scarlet letter, not an A like Hester Prynne had to wear. No, you might say it's an S. 
David points this out in Psalm 51 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Presence of God exposed the sin of our first parents that has carried over to all of us. It's a great start to a sermon, isn't it? Oh, yay. Get to talk about that. Positive, encouraging news this morning. So how do we keep going in the midst of all this? Well, after the presence that exposes, we also see, secondly, the promise that sustains. The promise that sustains in verses 14 and 15. You might be thinking, did, did he say promise? Yes, promise. We'll get to the curse, but there's a promise here. Did you miss it? Look with me at verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go in dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, briefly about the curse for now, more later, Satan's choice to inhabit a serpent. It's symbolic of his future crawling on the ground, eating dust, eventually defeated. No, no reason to think that serpents once had legs. It's simply giving new significance to what was already true. But again, there's promise in here. As God pronounces enmity between the woman and the serpent. Did you miss the promise? Because I'll be honest, one of my favorite commentaries on Genesis misses it completely. It's Nahum Sarna, he's Jewish. I don't know if he believes in the Messiah or not. Maybe that's why. And maybe we miss it because we're confused, distracted by these words, seed, offspring. So-called seed theology will run through the rest of Scripture. The Bible will trace the spiritual descendants of Satan and those who believe the lies of their spiritual father, the devil, John 8, 44. It'll trace that. It will also trace their war against the spiritual descendants of Eve. Sinners who find new life through faith in God's promises. Because there, there is a great promise in verse 15. Once again, one day it says this enmity will end. I've gotten asked about this throughout the week. I think this might be best illustrated by one of my children who has promised to behave himself during second service when I mention all this, who, despite only being five years old at the time, performed an original composition at last year's Celebration of Gifts, also known as the talent show. It went something like this. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus crushed the head of Satan. And on repeat, over and over. Again, and some of you know that when he performed it, he ran a lap around the sanctuary with his guitar, which I'm not going to replicate at this time. By the way, I promise he just started singing that one day at home. Don't know why. Maybe he remembered the one children's Bible that talks about the snake crusher. Maybe he remembered me preaching Genesis 3.15 two years ago at Christmas. Why the God man? Because of this. That's why. You may think all oh, that's funny. You may think it's strange to celebrate violence. I think this promise is essential to our hope as Christians. You see, one day he, one 
singular, male descendant, masculine descendant of Eve will bruise or crush, is the NIV. And the Good News translation rightly says he will crush the head of the serpent. One day the great tempter will be destroyed, the father of lies, the serpent whom Revelation 12 and 20 reimagines as a dragon. You may think I'm distracting us with a silly children's story. You're wrong. You see, when the Apostle Paul wraps up his magnum opus to the Romans, when he did that, he didn't think that this promise was beneath him. No, Paul closes the letter to the Romans the same way we closed our service last week. Our benediction came from Romans 16:20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see, Paul knew what theologians have been saying for years, that Genesis 3.15 is the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the first promise that one day God would come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He would undo all of it. Yes, our, our sin has been exposed, but so has our great hope. <laughs> the good news, the gospel, the, the promise that sustains, that's what it is. Even as God announces judgment and cursing, which leads to our next point. Thirdly, we see the punishment that reminds, the punishment that reminds in verses 14 through 19. Yes, there's a curse. There's punishment that reminds us of our continuing need only the serpent and the ground, close readers will, will note this, only they are said to be cursed. Though man and woman endure pain and hardship as a result of the curse, certainly. God starts with the serpent. He doesn't interrogate him because God knows he's guilty. Umberto Casuto says of verse 4 and verse 1, because he was cunning above all, he is cursed above all. And that curse involves, again, his lowly position. Symbolized by the crawling of the serpent, the curse also involves this continuing war with the woman and her seed, which he will lose. And then next, God says to the woman, he says to Eve, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And just remember what we're about to read about man, about woman, about the earth, our temporary home until, until we reach heaven, Eden restored. All of this is not the way it's supposed to be, to borrow a book title. This is how things are after the curse. Of course, woman was always intended to bear children. This is an honor. This is a privilege. And of course, not all women receive that privilege for reasons that God has not revealed. And on this side of the fall, bearing children, it involves pain. I don't have to explain that too much. And children may not understand this yet, but I hope they understand what I heard one mother tell her kids recently. Yes, pregnancy is hard, but I'd do it again a thousand times if it meant I got to have you. The other effect of the curse that's mentioned here may be more confusing. Your desire shall be for your husband, contrary to your husband, some translations would say, but he shall rule over you. 
This is the effect of the curse, the fall. All of our faculties are stained by sin. We rebel against God's design. Now, John Currid mentions four reasons that God's design before the fall included male headship, not male chauvinism, not male superiority, but male headship. You see, man and woman are equal in value and dignity. They're both made in God's image, but they do have a different design, different role. And man's role involves benevolent responsibility, servant leadership. Now, of John Currid's four scriptural proofs, I'll only mention two. One, man is created first. And second, why is it that Satan speaks to the woman first? Is it not to disrupt the leadership that God had established? See, that helps to explain some of verse 15, the second part. After the fall, woman will desire to oppose her husband, to rule over him, when in fact he will rule over her by God's design. Now let's clarify, often man will not, husbands will not do that perfectly. All masculinity is not toxic, you've heard me say that before, but after the fall, every man has the potential for toxic masculinity, to abuse the leadership role that God has given. I believe it's John Calvin who said the seed of every known sin lies within our hearts, the seed of it, the potential for it. Quote that I use in premarital counseling on the other end of that spectrum, a true leader is not anxious to assert that he is in charge. More often than not, his leadership is unobtrusive and gentle. But because of sin's continuing influence, we do not always live up to that. Men can make submission an unnecessarily great burden for our wives, which is hard enough for them to do on this side of the fall, even if we do a pretty good job, which we don't always do. And all of this is a reminder that we still need relief. We still need that final victory that God promises. We're also reminded of it through God's word to Adam, through man's punishment, because Adam obeyed the wrong voice, because Adam sinned with the fruit, the ground that grew that fruit will be cursed, it says in verse 17. Work wasn't always so hard. Work was a God-glorifying thing. It still can be, but it's harder on this side of Eden. Thorns, thistles, computer viruses are a part of life now, as well as bad attitudes, alienation, and distrust from our co-workers. We are but dust, the scripture reminds us, and to dust we shall return unless God intervenes and causes us to trust in Christ, giving us hope beyond that. But our bodies are dust, dust that has now been cursed, dust that now longs for redemption. As I read this section, I think of Romans 7, Paul describing his remaining sin in Romans 7. He reaches a crescendo somewhere around verse 24, where he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Isn't that what it is without Christ? A body of death. Whether you're five or 95, this body, it's slowly dying. It's headed for decay and not just physically, but also spiritually. Without Christ, we are growing older, but not up. Our metabolic rate is continually stuck. Jimmy Buffett may not understand grace, but I think he understands guilt and fallenness. That life is not the way it's supposed to be. It's a result of punishment. 
of a curse. And all that reminds us of our need of a savior, a savior who came once to break the power of sin's curse and a savior who will come again to crush it for good. That's the punishment that reminds that reminds us to cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until he does, there is also, fourthly, the propitiation that covers the propitiation that covers in verses 20 and 21. J.I. Packer once summed up the message of the New Testament in three words, propitiation by substitution. But what's propitiation? <laughs> well, you could read John, 1 John 2.2, 2, but let's define it. It's averting the wrath of God by offering a gift or a substitute. Now, some really sharp theologians among us might say, I'm not sure there's any substitution in these verses. You're probably right. I'm going to use this word anyway. How do we see propitiation that covers in these verses? Look with me in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Quickly for a moment, Adam gives her this new name. Probably means life, and he does it even after the curse. Why? Derek Kidner says it's because he heard the promise of verse 15 in faith. Long before Job, Adam knew that his redeemer lived, that he would see him face to face. And not because Adam deserved redemption, not because Adam could or would fix all of this. He knew that God would do it, that God would send someone to crush Satan, to wipe away every tear, to cover their sin and their shame, which is what we get to in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins clothe them. What's God doing? Isn't he replacing their filthy rags with something better? Their flimsy clothes with something solid? See the thing about fig leaves. They're five to ten inches long. They're not very thick. They're no match for the thorns and thistles that were waiting for him in his day job. One side of the leaf, according to Google, is rough and sandpaper-like while the other side has small, stiff hairs. Does that sound comfortable to you? Does that sound like adequate coverage to hide our sin and our shame? God knew it wasn't, which is why he gave them garments instead of loincloths, garments, leather instead of fig leaves, garments. That means a, a tunic with sleeves, more covering, much more than a loincloth. Did this take away their sin? No, but it covered it. It gave them more privacy, more dignity than before. Some speculate since God used skin, did he sacrifice an animal? And does all this imply that this was the first bloody sacrifice signifying the one to come? Well, scripture is pretty silent about the bloodiness of what's going on here. But you know, if you follow what the Bible does say, don't you end up in the same place? Because how is it that God eventually clothes us with garments of salvation and righteousness, as he says in Isaiah 61.10? Why is it that the bride of Christ gets to wear white at her wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb? Is it because we obey better than Adam? No. It's because Jesus obeys in our place and suffers in our place as well. It's because Jesus takes those filthy rags and gives us instead his spotless garments. It's because God made him who knew no sin to be sin 
for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ atones for our sin and he covers it up, not by turning a blind eye, but by suffering in our place. Christ is our ultimate propitiation, the one who turns away the wrath of God by taking the wrath of God in our place, standing in the gap, shielding us from God's wrath. God's son is our refuge from God's wrath, our hiding place from him. These leather garments, they were a better covering than the loincloths and the lamb of God is better still. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the better covering that this garment foreshadows. It's the ultimate propitiation that covers our sin and our shame. And there's a bit more foreshadowing to come. That leads to our final point. Number five, the protector that foreshadows. The protector that foreshadows in verses 22 to 24. Shout out to Pastor Stephen, who, by the way, is on vacation study leave this week. He gave me the wording for the final point as I debated different formulations with him. Thanks for that, Stephen. But Adam and Eve, they get kicked out of the garden here. They get banished, but there's still good news here. Look with me. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. First, God is gracious to banish him. You heard that right, because man is fallen. And if they keep eating freely from the tree of life, then they would have eternal life in a fallen state, right? Is that better than death or not? So God removes him from the garden. He's still going to work the ground, as it said back in chapter 2, verse 15. But it won't be paradise. It won't be Eden. And then in verse 24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherubim and the sword, they're guarding the entrance to the garden, to the tree of life, guarding or keeping watch. Again, same word as Genesis 2.15. They're protecting the tree. They're also protecting the man and his wife who are fallen. We shouldn't assume, by the way, that we can find Eden or this tree somewhere on earth. If God wants to guard it, no, no one can thwart his plans. And if thorns and thistles didn't consume it, then the divine gardener could have uprooted it and transplanted it into the new heavens and new earth. Yes, we will see this garden again. That's not the foreshadowing I'm talking about. There's more foreshadowing here. Mankind, again, has been banished from the garden. He's been alienated from the presence of a holy God. And the cherubim, in addition to being the protectors like we see here, they're also closely associated with the presence of God. Where do you see them again in scripture? Well, they pop up. The four living creatures seem to, to match this description in Ezekiel 10. Where else do you see them? Don't they appear on the Ark of the Covenant? Isn't it their wings that symbolically form the footstool of God? And where does that Ark come to rest after its wilderness journey? Isn't it in the Holy of Holies behind a veil? 
a place of limited access to God's presence. Wouldn't that have felt familiar to Adam and Eve had they seen this? The presence of God in one focused, intense location, but they don't have access to it. Of course, one man in ancient Israel was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, wasn't he? Once a year, he was allowed on the Day of Atonement, one man, the high priest, he could enter in to the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of his people. Until one day when all that changed, when a greater high priest offered a greater sacrifice for sins once for all time, a sacrifice so great, a propitiation so significant that the temple veil was torn into from top to bottom. Access to God's presence opened wide once again for all who trusted in that great high priest, for all who trusted in the sacrifice that he offered, the sacrifice of himself. The lion who was also a lamb, who was worthy to open the seven seals, who opened them up. He opened up a praise and worship service that never stopped. You can read about it all in Revelation 4, where interestingly enough, those four living creatures, the cherubim, show up once again. And there they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. These cherubim in Genesis 3, they may seem like a footnote, just an afterthought, background noise. But they're actually foreshadowing a greater promise to come. Though they protect fallen man from the presence of a holy God here, uh, a burning, face-melting holiness. They also foreshadow the same holy God, the same consuming fire, whom we will all see face-to-face -face once again. In Genesis 3, they're protectors. They banish mankind from God's presence, but they also foreshadow the day when we will bask in his presence, when we will praise his name forever. At the beginning of this, I said, the God who created paradise will sustain us until he restores it. But he won't simply sustain us, of course. He will also cover our sins. He will suffer for them. He will save us and sanctify us. Yes, he will sustain us. But he will also purify us so that we'll be fit to stand in God's presence once again. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. But this is not how it will be either. Not forever. Not for those who trust in Christ. So sustain us until that day comes, O oh Lord. Sustain us until you restore the home that we've lost. Sustain us until you perfect it. Sustain us until you perfect us. Let's pray. O oh God, our help in ages past be our help and our hope for years to come. Be with us through all the storms of this life. Help us to see in this passage of sadness, of cursing, the great promises we have. One day seeing Christ face to face. One day seeing our final enemy defeated. One day seeing our sin covered permanently. God be with us. Sustain us until that day comes. We pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.